Okay, Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. I shall read it, probably very well known to you, and then we'll pray and then we'll study. Finally, brothers, brothers and sisters, it should be, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to, to study it, to be in it. May our hearts be soft. May our hearts be ready. May we not resist your spirit and his work through your word. Father, may your spirit work in our hearts and change us, mold us, where there are areas where we're not walking as we should. May we walk properly. May we live as you desire. May there be repentance, change, turning where there needs to be, Lord, and may there be encouragement where there is what there should be. And in all this, Lord, may you be glorified in our midst today, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, we're coming now towards the end. This is the last couple of verses of this section. And then we have the final section uh, taking us through to the end. Uh, so one more chunk to come up after this week. And we've seen in this book of Philippians, we've seen Paul with this congregation that he loves dearly, that he's very affectionate towards, that he has a lot of care for. And he's been reaching out to them and he's been encouraging them. They've done most things very well. They're walking as they should. One thing that has uh, obviously been an issue is something that he was building up to the entire letter, and that is the conflict between Euodia and Syntyche. Euodia and Syntyche is not some afterthought. It's not one of those, oh, by the way, there's this little thing. I'll mention it for two verses. But the entire letter has been building up to this. The central theme of Philippians has been that of thinking and of the mind. Have the same mind. Be thinking the same way. And the theological heart of the letter was chapter 2, where he was telling us that the way in which we think, the mind that we should have, should be the mind of Christ. More so, we do have that mind. That is ours by right as Christians. But we need to live that way. We need to think that way. We need to, like Christ, think little of ourselves and think more of others. We, like Christ, need to humble ourselves and trust that God will one day lift us up if we do humble ourselves and will ultimately exalt us and reward us. And therefore, our goal should be to do the right thing, to live the right way, to prioritize God and to prioritize others and know that God is in control in the midst of that. And as he's had this theme that's been running throughout everything here, we came to this last chapter. And the chapter began where he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, I make no apologies for uh, adding the ancestors the Greek word here translated brother, uh, brothers, 
Adelphoi is a word that would encompass the sisters, the, the women of the church as well. I think, it's, I, I've, I think it's a mistranslation to only have brothers because clearly the two main people in the whole of this section are two ladies. So he's saying to everybody else in the church, you know, look at this situation and learn. Do what you can to help and don't be in this situation yourself. And it's unthinkable that he could be saying, hey guys, hey men, have a look at these women. You know what they're like. Oh, terrible. Don't be like that. Of course he's not saying that. So he's saying brothers and sisters. He's talking to the whole church, to them. And so he's asking them to uh, stand firm in the Lord, to live as they should. And the implication is that Euodia and Syntyche hadn't done that. They need to ag be, agree in the Lord, literally be in the same mind in Christ. They need to think, as they've been told to think in chapter 2, to think the way that Christ thinks. Euodia needs to think more of Syntyche, and Syntyche needs to think more of Euodia. The solution to their conflict, because it's clearly not a theological conflict, the solution to their conflict is for them to love one another, to humble themselves and to prioritize one another. And so we saw that, and the rest of the church have been asked, uh, well, not the rest of the church, the true companion, the appropriate person who's, who's going to step in and come alongside and help, and, and not to notice rebuke or to, to attack, but to help, to come alongside because these are workers who've been working for the sake of the gospel. They're Christians, and they need just to be encouraged to get this thing right. Then when we came last week to verse 4, we saw that these instructions that are so familiar, this, these verses, to so many Christians, are verses that are really have been taken out of context. Yes, we should always rejoice, but he's specifically saying to Euodia and Syntyche in the midst of their conflict, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Be grateful for what God has done in you. And I think by implication, be grateful for what God has done in Syntyche, Euodia, in Euodia, Syntyche. Be grateful for the work that God has done within them and be reasonable and gentle and calm about the situation. Remembering that God is at a hand, don't be anxious, don't worry. This is back to chapter 2, isn't it? Trusting God. Trusting God when we humble ourselves that he will exalt us. So don't be anxious. There are ramifications and implications of, of humility in such situations and therefore we make our requests known. We make prayer and supplication. We give thanksgiving for who God is and what he's done. And therefore, we can have a peace. A peace that overrides the situation. So, Euodia and Syntyche, they're encouraged to humble themselves, to think more of one another, to rejoice in what God's done in their lives, to, um, to trust God as they humble themselves, and to trust him. And then there will be a peace that they will have, even in the midst of very difficult and trying circumstances. When we come to verse 8, and he says, finally, then, brothers and sisters. He, this, again, is um, it's what we call this kind of inclusio, this packaging together. We started the chapter with brothers and sisters, and we're ending this section with brothers and sisters. So this is part of this self-contained section that is dealing with Euodia and Syntyche. 
when, um, when he was telling them at the start, he said, look, you need to stand firm. He was telling them initially that the way in which they lived and what they did had to be in the Lord. Now at the end, he's going to tell them to practice, which is a kind of a bit of a parallel. And then when you go in from the beginning, he talks about them rejoicing in the Lord always. And here, as you go in a bit, he's talking about thinking on things a certain way, which is what he was doing in that section. So there's a lot of parallels in the structure here. This is the self-contained section where he's saying to these ladies, the way in which you think and you focus and what you think about is crucial for how you deal with conflict. So that's all of our context. So let's look specifically at what they're told to do. He says to them, brothers and sisters, specifically Yodia and Syntyche, but broadly the church, in similar situations and to avoid similar situations. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, this is a list. The ancients liked their lists. The philosophers of the day would have their lists. The uh, Roman Gentile community in Philippi would have known what it meant to be part of that Roman community. They would be told that there's a certain way for them to be and to live. And Paul is, in a sense, duplicating that and saying, as Christians, this is the way for you to live. Typically, when people preach on these kind of passages, there is a lot of time spent on the details of each individual word. Personally, I think that's a bit of a waste. For starters, two of the words here in this list are words that are only found in the, in the New Testament here in this passage. Another one is only used by Paul once here, and another one is just very rare for Paul to use. So these aren't words that we can say, oh, look, we see this word used all the time, and this is precisely what it means. We know pretty much what it means, but we don't want to spend hours going over every word because I think the gist of it is really the more important thing. But I think what is worth noting here is this. That what he's saying is, is that these are the things generally, we'll go back and have a look at the specifics, but these are the things generally that you should think about. Now, those of you who are smart and have been with us from the beginning will be thinking, pun intended, ah, think on these things. There's that word again, Anthony. That's the theme that you've been telling us about right the way through the book of Philippians. He's been using that word again and again and again. Right? No, wrong. It's a different word. Just to confuse you. So it, it, it's tricky in Philippians because so often the word that is the key word that's been repeated is translated in different ways. Think this way. Feel this way. Have the same mind. May your mind be like that. Even in, in, in the, here in chapter 4, agree with one another. These are all different English words, but they all translate the same Greek word and have the same theme. So why here do we have a slightly different word? What is the difference? Well, the word here, where he says think on these things, isn't think in the sense of mind, having the same mind. It's think in the sense of consider. 
chew over, focus upon. So in, in previously he's saying, look, here is what your mind should be. This, this is a way of thinking, and you should think this way. So in a sense, that way of thinking is a directional thing. Look in this direction. Don't look in that direction. Look in this direction. Don't think about yourself and what's best for you. Think about the other people and what's best for them. It's a directional thing. This word is less of a directional word and more of a, of a going in that direction word. It's a chewing word. It's a meditating on word. It's a processing word. It's a word of study, of thinking over, of, of, of reminding. And so what he's saying here is, yes, you go in this direction, but he's saying, this is where your focus needs to be. And so what he's saying is he saying, these are the things that you need to focus on, to be thinking about. Now, when you take this verse out of context, it is a favorite verse of the legalists. And regulars will know I'm not a fan of legalism. And I have heard it said, you know, oh, you watch that TV program, do you? Isn't that a police drama? Don't people get killed? Well, if someone gets... That's murder. That's not a good thing. You shouldn't be thinking on those things. You shouldn't be watching that. This is, it's, like a, it's like a legalist's playground when you wrench it from context. That is not what he's saying. In fact, the concept that we shouldn't ever think about evil and bad things is ridiculous. Because constantly in the Bible, we're told to do that. We're told to you know, search my heart, God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. Be aware, the Bible says, of these sins and don't walk in them. We're not to be ignorant. I'm not saying that we should be experts in sin. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that the, the legalistic concept that comes from removing this verse from its context, the, the, that concept that we should never think about anything other than, than positive thoughts the whole time. We should only, we should never consider uh, sin and its consequences and what have you. It's just ridiculous. The idea, if that were the case, then Christians would be the ones that you would recognize in the street because we'd be wearing blinkers everywhere we went. And we'd have earplugs in our ears and we wouldn't be able to go to work and we wouldn't be able to live in the world. That's not what it's saying in context. Let's think about what this means in context. The context is two people who are in conflict. There is division between two people. And there's division between them, not because one of them is theologically wrong, but there's division between them because of the, what, probably one of the, 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 you know, the, the minor things that we disagree with with people all the time. But this conflict had gotten out of hand. And Paul says, look, here's your problem. Your problem is, is that you don't have the same mind. If Euodia thought that Syntyche was important, and Syntyche thought Euodia was important, there wouldn't be a problem here. And so he's given them specifics to correct the way they think about each other. And that's our context. So in that context, 
He's saying to them, you need to consider, focus on, chew over, you know, have your, 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 your focus directly on whatever is true. So in that context, it's this, okay? If you're in conflict with someone, and they, I don't know, they tread on your toe one day, and you've got a sore toe, and all oh, that hurt, then what you can be tempting to do is to say, you know that Syntyche? Oh, she's such a klutz, she's always treading on toes. Just careless, thoughtless, you know, just the other day, there I was sitting in my seat and Syntyche walks by and boom, treads on my toe. Just typical. Is that true? That's not true. What's true is that she's trodden your toe once. What's happening is that there is an opportunity because of anger, because of frustration, because of a negative reaction, there is an opportunity to say things that aren't true. How easy it is to use the words always and never when those words aren't true. When we are trying to think the right way, we need to be truthful. And sometimes that means not ignoring sin. Other times it means not inventing sin. Our words need to be truthful. And sometimes when we get frustrated, emotional, angry even, there is a temptation for us to loosen our truthfulness, exaggerate here and there. And that is a temptation we must resist. We should be thinking on what is true, what is true. So when we're in a situation of conflict, we can't resolve it if we are thinking about things that simply aren't true. Oh, this person always is, and they like this. If those things aren't true, you're creating a situation that can't be resolved. So we need to think about whatever is true. Secondly, whatever is honorable. You say, okay, well that person just trod on my toe. That's not very honorable, is it? No, it's not. So what you need to focus on is not the fact that that person trod on your toe. Because if all you're doing is thinking about the fact they trod on your toe, then it's not going to be too far down the line before you're saying, oh, they're such a klutz. They're always treading on toes. What you need to do is you need to think, you know, that is the person that trod on my toe yesterday, but it's also the person that did this good thing last week. Isn't it funny how when something negative happens, we have a tendency to focus on that negative rather than to focus on the positives. That's what this is about, this passage as a whole. And when someone does do something wrong, I'm not saying it's good to tread on toes. I think I'll probably go with this analogy today. It's a pretty neutral one, isn't it? I'm not saying it's good to tread on toes. I'm not saying if someone treads on your toe, whether you even know if it was an accident or deliberate. What I'm saying is this, we have a tendency as our toe throbs to only think about our toe. When we do that, that's our sin. 
And the irony is, is there we are thinking, what a sinner, what a, what a, what a klutz, toe treader. We are thinking of the other person as a sinner, and in the very act of doing that, we're the sinner. Because what we're doing is we're not focusing, we're not thinking, we're not chewing over, we've not got our eyes on whatever is honourable. Something that brings honour to that person. That person's not just simply the klutz that treads on toes, that person is the person that encourages, that does this, that does that, that blessed us in this way, that helped us in that way, be it five minutes ago, five days ago, five years ago. And we'll keep moving through them fairly swiftly, so whatever is just, so whatever is fair. Again, you know, there's going to be a little crossover here and a little bit of uh, repetition, but whatever is just in the sense that there needs to be fairness. We don't want to be misrepresenting. We've already spoken about that with regards to truth. Whatever is pure. And again, that kind of folk, that's uh, more in parallel with honourable, in that we want to be focusing on the good within a person and not on the bad. Whatever is lovely. That's one of those words that we don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. It's an unusual word. It probably means lovely. Um, it may have a, a hint of, um, of doing nice things, going out of your way to do nice things. Whatever is commendable. You see a theme here developing in these words? What he's saying is, and again, we, we could get lost in the individual words, but I think we missed the point if we did. What he's saying is this. If someone sins against you, think about what a lovely person they are. That's what he's saying. Someone treats you badly, think about all the times they treated you well. If someone messed up, think about the times they got it right. If someone gets a, a negative score, think about all the times they got positive scores. Think about the good in people. Let that be your focus. You say, do we ignore sin? No, he's not saying that. He's already said, hey, look, get someone to come alongside. Help these people. Let's deal with this. He's already said it's not right for us to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We should humble ourselves. We should have a mind like Christ. He tells us what we should do. He's not ignoring sin. He's giving people whom he loves, people who he cares about, people he knows wants to follow Christ, He's telling them how to do it. He says, look, if you're in a conflict like Euodia and Syntyche, you've got to think good of each other. When you think bad of each other, you get in a spiral that just goes down and down and down and down. You've got to think good of each other. And he wraps it up, just in case we think that somehow this list is precise and definite and, and self-contained. He opens it up at the end. He says, if there's anything worthy of praise, if there's any excellence, so someone really upsets you, somebody really hurts you, and all you can think about is the pain, the negatives, the sin, the bad stuff, and start digging. What's good? What's excellent? What can they could be commended for? What have they done that's worthy of praise? 
And it's hard. When your toe's being trodden on and your toe is throbbing, everything in you is thinking about that toe because there's pain. And pain draws attention. Physical pain draws attention to the place of pain. And you're, you're there and you're thinking about that pain. It's affecting you. And it's the same emotionally. It's the same mentally. We have pain and we're thinking about that thing. And so it's not easy in that situation to say, you know what? That person is a great encourager. That person really served on that time, on that occasion. And everything within you is screaming, but they tread on my toe! Everything within you is focusing on that toe, that pain, that hurt. And you know, this is the kind of thing that needs to distinguish us as believers. We're not animals. We don't just do whatever our emotions, whatever our instinct tells us. We rise above that because we have the Holy Spirit. So we rise above it and we say, yep, my toe is hurting right now. And yes, that person trod on it. And they may have even done it deliberately. But aren't they good at this? Didn't they do that well? Aren't they wonderful in this way? Man, it's a challenge. It can be incredibly difficult. Particularly when we're dealing with repeated foot stomping. Toes that have been trodden on so many times that they're throbbing in pain before the next stomp comes down. But the scripture remains true. This should be our response. And so, it is that these are our, this is our focus and this is how we respond. And in doing so, we create an environment. And, and can you see, by the way, Paul hasn't come out of a vacuum. One of the things we've seen in our Tuesday night studies is we've seen how Paul was raised in Judaism. He knew the Old Testament incredibly well. He misapplied it, misunderstood Christ, had a vision of Christ, had to reinterpret everything. And, and, and he has the life of Christ that he knows about, and he has the Old Testament. And everything comes through that filter. And you know, when Christ says, love your enemies, anyone can love their friends, love your enemies. Do you not think that that impacts what Paul is saying here? This is practically how you do it. One of the other things that's come throughout this letter has been this repetition of, this constant hinting at, our unity. Unity in, the three main themes are the thinking, the joy, and the unity. And, and he talks about how we're united in the spirit. And here it is, is, is that there's a division here where there should be unity. There's division where there should be unity. And he's, he's giving them practical tips to be able to bring it together, to be able to draw that unity back amongst people where the division has happened. And loving our enemies should be an issue for what we do with those outside the church. Within the church, we're family. We're, we're one body. And because of that, 
We shouldn't be thinking of each other as enemies anyway. This should be our common practice. Now, if you've got a Euodia Syntyche situation, if you've got like a serious conflict that's impacting other people, then obviously this is, he's given us very clearly here our methodology for resolving. Very clearly. But he's saying it to the whole church. Hey, brothers and sisters, this is how it should be. Can you imagine a congregation? Now, let's take a step back. Can you imagine how awesome it would be to be the person that Paul's describing? I always think things in analogies of running, because I do a lot of running, as you know, and I've coached and stuff. And I like to see progression in training, and those I coached in the past, I would see progression. And you think, can you imagine what it would be like if you, if you keep training and you get faster and you can run this speed, and then you can run that speed, and you can do this, and then you can do that. And, and as Christians, Paul uses the analogy of competitive athletes in 1 Corinthians to talk about striving and pressing on and becoming more mature in our faith. And, and so I say to you, can you imagine what it would be like to be that good, to be that mature in our faith, that instinctively, when someone sins against us, we say, what do I know that's good about this person? You can train animals to do most things. Certain animals anyway. You know, my dog's not the most obedient dog, but Joseph taught, taught him to roll over. He actually rolls over. The trick is you've got to hold a little piece of a treat for him. And he's, you know, he'll sit and he'll lie down and then you say, roll over. And he'll roll over in a circle and then he gets his treat. I was amazed. I was like, no, Joe, you're never going to be able to teach him how to do that. And Joe proved me wrong. He taught him how to do it. Showed him how it was done. And he did it and he does it because he gets the treat. How about we train ourselves? How about we train ourselves so that when someone who's a brother or sister in Christ says something that hurts us, does something that hurts us, that we immediately, instantly have trained ourselves so that our instinctive reaction, almost like an animal, just it becomes natural to us, is to say, okay, what good things do I know about this person that I can think about? Wouldn't that just be awesome? Because the natural thing to do is for someone to hurt you and for you to immediately think about what's not commendable, about what's not right, about what they've done wrong, about what's not honourable. The immediate thing you want to do is that. And then what you want to do is to not be just and not be true and to make this person out to be this terrible person. But as Christians, we need to do the opposite. And what about a church where everybody lives that way? Where every time there's sin, every time there's conflict, every time the enemy tries to bring some sort of problem into our midst, we turn it around on him and we use it as an opportunity to praise and encourage someone. Think how different that would be. 
that can be ours. That can be yours. That can be you. Let's make that our goal. He then concludes the section by saying, what you've learned and received, I'll put those two together. You've learned from me teaching. You've received it. You've, you've got that. And what you've heard and you've seen. In other words, these are things that have been taught in theory and these are things that have been witnessed in practice. He's saying what you've done, practice these things. Now, to what things is he referring to? Well, I think the things he's referring to, in one sense, has got to be this immediate context in chapter 4 of the conflict between Euodia and Syntyche. He's basically saying, look, these things, this way of dealing with it, you've got to do it. You've got to practice it. This is how you've got to live. But I think also what we're coming to is the closing remarks of the letter. The teaching, in a sense, has almost come to an end. So it's quite possible that this statement could be a, a thing going back further. But as I said to you, the practical stuff about the conflict is really what the whole letter's been building to anyway. So he's saying, look, this stuff, this is how you've got to live. This is what you've got to do. And then he says this, and the God of peace will be with you. And can you see the structure and the repetition here? He says, do this, and there will be a peace that will, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts. And now he's saying, do this, and the God of peace will be with you. That isn't to say that if you don't do this, God isn't with you. God's always with us. What it's saying specifically is that the peace that God brings will be with you. It's pretty much a repetition of the previous section. There is, and we said this before the last time, but it's repeated here, so I'll repeat it again. Because we're almost at the end now, and this is, other than my summary of the book, this is pretty much it for you hearing it. But the book of Philippians teaches us to be humble like Christ is humble to mirror that example of Christ. And guys, just as Paul comes alongside them gently, I come alongside you gently, and I say this, I know it's scary. It's really, really scary. To say, you know what, I'm being treated badly here, but I'm going to think good of that person. I'm being taken advantage of here, but I'm going to be humble. I'm having what's wrong done to me and I'm going to use that as an opportunity to remind myself that the other person is more important than I. I'm going to live like Christ. Guys, that is a scary way to live. It's a really scary way to live. You know why? Because it's an it's, it's open door for people to take advantage of you, to abuse you, to walk over you, to cause you further harm, to give you more pain, But God says if you do it for the sake of Christ, there's a peace that comes in the midst of that. The peace comes 
from trusting God. And I, I keep going back to it because my mind keeps getting drawn back to the center of the book. Christ humbling himself and God therefore exalting him. Every time when you could justify a response to someone who hurts you, that isn't humble, that isn't honorable, that isn't worthy, that isn't true, that isn't just, that isn't excellent, isn't worthy of praise. Every time you could justify that and you don't, there is a reward for you in heaven. There's a reward for you that you will never, ever lose. Let that be your peace. Let it be your peace that you're walking in Christ's footsteps, that you're becoming more like him. And I tell you, this is the crux of the situation. This stuff shows us what we really want in life. Do you want a comfortable life where people don't tread on your toes and you protect yourself from it? Or do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want a life with less pain, more comfort, where you defend your rights and punish those who treat you badly? Or do you want to be like Jesus? If you want to be like Jesus, then do these things. Be ready to think good when harm is done. Be ready to think highly of those for whom you're tempted to think less. And may, as we do that, may God give us a peace in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of being treated badly or wrongly. May God give us a peace that he is in control, that he sees our hearts, and that he will one day reward us for each and every time we've humbled ourselves under his mighty hand. Let's pray. Father, as we end this passage, we know how hard it is when we're hurt, when we're treated badly, to think good of the other person. May we do it, Lord. May we be like Christ. May we be like Christ. May we humble ourselves. May we walk as we should. In his footsteps. In his way. And Lord, when we're reminded of our desire for comfort, our desire for happiness, our desire for, for peace, our desire for no trials. Give us a desire to be like Christ and to follow him. And may we repent where we've discarded that desire.
that goal. Father, may we follow your Son. May, by the power of your Spirit, we walk as we should. For your glory. Amen.